1: Alright, my friends, welcome to a very silly episode of Reconsider today's theme, Go Home Twenty Sixteen, You're Drunk. It's just had one too many drinks. It really just needs to call it a night. It's I mean, it's it's been more than one too many, my friend. That is something <laughs> I think we would have said back in April or something. We were like, Oh man, maybe dude, maybe you need to slow down a little bit. Maybe you need to Grab some water instead. 2016 said, no, fuck you. I'm fine. I can drink as much as I want.
0: And sometimes to commiserate with your drunk friend, you need to have a drink or two yourself, you know, to get into the mindset. So in order to be really on the same page with 2016, Eric and I are indulging. I We were supposed to do beer. I messed up.
1: I didn't go to Trader Joe's. So. What are you drinking?
0: It is a 2014 bottle of Cru Beaujolais from moulin Avant.
1: Oh, I hear that's a good year.
0: I actually don't know if it was.
1: I don't know if that's a good. I don't know <laughs> if that's a good year <laughs>
0: it, it, it tastes it tastes like deliciousness, so it'll, it'll work in lieu of beer.
1: Cool. And I am drinking Jack's Abbey Hoponius Union, which I highly recommend. And as you guys can probably tell, this time, Xander and I are getting buzzed in separate cities. I'm in Cambridge as usual. Xander, are you are you in LA yet? You're in, in LA. LA. Yeah, so Xander moved and down from the Bay Area. Uh and yeah, today we're going to talk about all the terrible things that are happening in 2016 and why you should be upset.
0: So here's the rundown. What's been going wrong in 2016? Well, Everything. Just, just look at it, right? I mean, the rise of demagogues and anti-establishmentism. That's a word. Look it up. Trump and Sanders and Johnson, and Le Pen uh, in the U.S. and France.
1: Well, and also, you know, the uh, Lafarge in the United Kingdom, and you know, Hungary has gone totally off the wall. They've gone full dictator almost. Full dict. Yeah, it's true. You never go full dictator. <laughs> <laughs> Never go full dictator. A lot,
0: a lot of Western countries are having problems.
1: Uh, I was just thinking, France is like banning burkinis. and Ugh. of course the, of course the 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 selling point is, oh, burkinis are restrictive on women. But of course, like, there's no law forcing women to bear burkini, wear bikinis. It's not like they're lifting a law that forces women to wear burkinis. This is not Saudi Arabia. What they're doing is they're saying, you're not allowed to wear burkinis, which is so funny because I saw a picture recently of, uh, a like police officer running around a beach in the United States where he was actually measuring women's, uh, swimsuits to make sure that they were low enough because they had to only like X percent or X inches above the knee could be revealed. Um, and so they are running around saying, oh, you're showing too much skin. And now the problem, of course, is that in France, you're not showing enough skin. And that's bad somehow. So it just the world has gone upside down in crazy town. I want to make some obscure joke about the social
0: unrest in Burkini Faso, but I don't oh. think anyone will get it.
1: <laughs> oh. Are we going to have to cut that? No, we Maybe. won't cut that.
0: All right. So anyways, there's all of this stuff going on in the West, but... In addition, there is terrorism, and it's coming at us from everywhere and in every city in France and the u s and they're coming after our freedoms and liberty and democracies and our multilateral institutions are beginning to break down under pressure from china u n CLOS, which we talked about the uh, maritime organization that governs laws on seas is really being stressed by a recent court ruling that we talked about on on a recent episode or against at least the Philippines to govern. Yeah, that's well, that's the problem with multilateral institutions, is it not? Isn't it? It 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 is. And well, that's what else is going wrong, Eric? Let's well, keep complaining a little bit well, first. Well, the
1: EU is, is now falling apart and Britain may now, you know, if Britain actually invokes article 50 and does Brexit, Scotland's like, I'm out of here. So then the UK may fall apart. NATO might fall apart, so it's like eastern bloc allies or members have like lost faith in NATO and they're like, fuck you, we're forming our own battle group, Vice Grad 4 forever, woo, because they just basically <laughs> don't trust the United States and uh, France and Germany to not Koto to Russia, who's got like allegedly all this leverage over the EU, and that's why the EU is being soft. Uh, but you know, they're a legitimate concern out there in the East that Russia is going to mess with them, so like, all right, forget it. We're not gonna do it. And then, of course, as Trump's president, he's gonna be like, well, maybe we'll respect our NATO obligations, but only if we get something in return. So that might all that's just gonna fall apart. Russia's gonna take over Europe. And all those video games you play where Russia takes over Europe are now going to be simulators for the US Army.
0: And Russia is escalating. Very very recently, they moved, I forget exactly what. Equipment and personnel, but it was some sort of missile capability is into nips? a range. Um, I don't, I don't know. I, I think it nips, was some sort of honestly. probably like mid-range missiles, um, right up. Uh, I, I imagine in in the near Crimea, basically to begin to put more pressure. And they moved a lot of divisions along the border with Ukraine. And I I buy George Friedman's argument, which is basically Russia's setting themselves up to build negotiating leverage when they get back to the table with the u.s about ukraine so that's been escalating in just the last couple of days and we haven't even talked about the middle east or well really i mean in terms of regional conflicts the middle east is where it's all falling apart
1: yeah i mean there's i mean isis is on its way to forming a caliphate syria is totally falling apart and millions of people are leaving uh sorry as refugees and hundreds of thousands are dying and Iraq is a mess and Sunnis and Shiites are just butchering each other and ISIS is in Libya and ready to strike into Italy and sending thousands of people I'm sure into Europe to commit more terrorist attacks. So that's bad. I wrote a very nuanced, subtle perspective, an
0: article on on the risks that we're facing today on the Reconsider blog called We're All Gonna Die, and it kind of gets into some of the different different risks that we face in the U.S. from terrorism and from other types of uh, potentially fatal risks.
1: So there's also the drug war in Mexico is escalating, and I'm sure millions of people are going to cross the border into the United States and steal jobs, so that's bad. Uh, And speaking of the U.S., the election is just... (laughs) It's definitely the most interesting that we've seen in a while. But, of course, like, we have a record high dislike of candidates, which means sort of by definition half the country is going to be really, really angry afterward. And we've got Trump saying this definitely be rigged and something about Second Amendment blocking Hillary, you know, Second Amendment people blocking Hillary's appointment of anti-Second Amendment judges. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So, you know, and if. Trump gets elected, obviously half of the country is going to freak out. You know, it makes you think, you know, if you think back to 2004, I remember a lot of my friends saying, you know, if George Bush is reelected, I'm going to leave the country. Then they didn't. But they were sitting there thinking, i would seriously going to leave the country because this guy is so bad. Uh, and, you know, same with Obama. Like, he's a socialist. He's going to tear down America. And we hate him. But if we look at the data, like, people didn't actually... Dislike them that much in that they didn't have a particularly high rate of people saying they highly disapprove of them. That uh, this case, it's the two most disliked candidates in the history of keeping track of that, which goes back to the 1980s. So that's that's bad.
0: Then of course there's the coup or the attempted coup in Turkey or the and... staged coup. Uh, what's what's the theory behind that? There's
1: a, I mean there's a conspiracy theory that it was a staged coup because. Uh I mean a bunch of a bunch of sketchy things happened like for example the you know coup people bombed Erdogan's resort house like 30 minutes after he left and then when he was flying with two F16s as escort to Istanbul Airport not only was Istanbul Airport held by the coup faction but also they had sent two F16s to you know, to sit behind Erdogan and they could have at least taken out his escort, even if somehow they thought that taking Erdogan alive would have been better. Uh, but they didn't fire and they just flew away. And then conveniently an hour before Erdogan landed in Istanbul airport, the coup holders just left, even though they didn't face any direct military resistance. I mean, it's either like the luckiest coup ever for the people being cooed against or there's like sketchy stuff going on and maybe it was just that he had like you know moles in the coup and that it there was a legit coup and he just had some people pulling strings behind it or something but anyway it's fishy to me super fishy kind of like the Reichstag fire it's not that it didn't burn down sure
0: yeah the the the, the non-conspiracy theory take is there are Secular elements in, Especially in the military And Turkey has been historically At least for the last hundred years A secular bastion in the Middle East And Erdogan Who's the head executive Authority in Turkey Has been developing more and more Support amongst Increasingly I don't know if extreme is the right word But fairly extreme (laughs) Sunni Turks And there has been this resurgence of appeals to religion as as a source for identity in in turkey and basically people in the military said yeah we don't really like that direction you know we we kind of like the whole secular thing we got going on there and now after the coup of course Erdogan's using this as an excuse to really crack down on every single possible source of opposition he sees and just
1: completely ruthlessly take authority in the country. I mean basically 100,000 people have just been like rounded up. There was definitely a list before the coup. He's like these are all the people that I don't like and want them gone and now they're gone. 2016 is seems like it's been pretty rough, huh, Eric? Well, yeah. I mean, the global markets are at over 200 trillion in debt, which is I mean, if you think about it, the United States economy is 17 trillion. So more than ten times of that in global debt, and growth is slow, and, you know, if you're an Austrian or freshwater economist, you're probably freaking out right now. And by the way, we're all going to boil to death. It's been the hottest year. It's going to get hotter. We're going to die. It's bad.
0: We're, we're all going to die. It's, it's going to happen. We're
1: all going to die.
0: So are, are there any themes or factors driving these seemingly really just you—
1: ubiquitously negative events or is it just bad luck oh man i mean both uh i mean certainly certainly in terms of the breakdown of the eu and multilateral institutions it's one of those things that like in a unipolar world it's easy to have multilateral institutions because the united states can just kind of like thwack anyone that doesn't that makes trouble and so everyone's like oh you know it's a good fences make good neighbors kind of thing and when there's like very little risk of anyone else messing with you because the United States is so preponderant in every single region. It's easy to get along because you don't actually have the security spiral problem. You don't worry about other people's military because the U.S.'s military is just so much bigger. Um, so when you know that your buddy's not going to, your neighbor's not going to invade you, you can make deals with them. And as United States influence starts to decline, both through some geopolitical stuff, but also through policy there's, you know, there's kind of more tension rising, um, and probably more nationalism. Uh, and maybe just nationalism is just part of the natural human in-group, out-group thing, and multilateral institutions can't last. Who knows? But I think that this is somewhat of a trend. There is a rise of nationalism throughout Europe, probably the United States as well, at least on the Trump side of things. And... Oh, the other trend seems to be towards right you know kind of some forms of extreme right wingism hanging out in a lot of countries that otherwise weren't there and by right wingism, I kind of mean the fascist style as opposed to just like religious right wingism or free marketeerism or something like that. but I mean like fascism ism's my favorite suffix. Ism is a great suffix for anything isism ism Is oh gosh. Oh, uh, you could probably make that a thing, but I don't want you to. I pray you don't. I pray we don't. We're about to make P- a thing. Please make it a meme. Oh Do it. Gosh. Go forth. <sighs> anyway. Um, so, yeah, there's this, like, kind of fascism rising. So Hungary has become pretty bloody fascist, and Poland is becoming pretty right-wing, and Le Pen in France is pretty scary, right-wing. Um, and it's all, you know, it's a form of, like, nationalist right-wingism. So it's a reaction to something going on globally. It might be the global market. It might be liberalism. And I don't mean left-wingism. I mean, like, classical liberalism as, you know, global free trade and getting everyone to get along. And uh, But it may also be a reaction against multiculturalism and some of, the pro- some of, like, the real problems that have risen with that. In particular, the tiny flashy problems. And it may just be kind of a breakdown of the United States influence where people start to go like, okay, we need to hunker down and look out for ourselves because our neighbors are getting a little scarier due to the lack of Leviathan. So it could be a lot of that stuff. But I think globally there seem to be some trends. One of my
0: pet issues – I say that a lot. I feel like I have a lot of pet issues. You
1: do have a lot of pet issues.
0: I'm a pet person so long as the pets are issues. It's important to not lose sight of the big picture, right? So it seems just, you know, watching the news, that 2016 is just turning into a miserable year. Everything's going wrong. The West is imploding in on itself. The Middle East is falling apart. You have a resurgent
1: Russia. You have a resurgent China. Oh, my gosh. But... Well, in 2016, is like it's like that old drunk guy, or that old, like, smelly guy at the bar that's drunk all the time and... You really don't want to make eye contact with him because as soon as you do, he's going to start talking at you and you're not going to get away for two hours. Right. But it's important to not lose sight of the big picture. And the
0: way that we consume news impacts our perception of the world. It's easy to lose sight of this, but one of the most important things I think to keep in mind when trying to understand global minds is – that the news selects
1: by definition newsworthy events. Yeah, there's the there's the insight of the century. Thanks, Xander.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's what I'm here for, encouraging you to reconsider
1: just completely obvious things. That newsworthy things go to the news. Now you know, heard it first from Xander. You're welcome. Newsworthy stories
0: are not normal or usual events, right? Because you're not going to hear the 99.999% of things that occur in the world that are u- that are normal and commonplace because there's only so much time to consume information and it's more exciting and will drum up more interest if the news covers things that are, you know, out there and anomalies and unusual flashy. Exactly. Flashy, flashy little things. But to understand trends you need to focus on frequency as well. And most news outlets do a terrible job at accurately portraying relative frequency and therefore risk.
1: Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to Bluenile.com. That's Bluenile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter.
0: Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
1: Yeah, and we'll get back to this normalcy versus flashy thing later. So
0: what, what are some of these big trends? If you look at all of these events that, that we just related in the last couple of minutes... That are going to lead to a complete implosion of a global society in the context of all of those events that aren't getting covered by the news, right? Well, let's talk about terrorism. Dun, dun, dun. Thank you for the sound effect. You're welcome. To understand how deadly terrorism really is, we need to compare the risk from terrorist attacks against other deadly risks that we face day to day. And I go into depth in this and present all the statistics in that article. We're all gonna die on the blog.
1: I mean, it's true we are.
0: Yeah, it's we are inevitable. at some point it's it is inevitable.
1: It's I mean the circle of life is the cetera. other big insight of the century brought to you by Xander Schneider.
0: I'm on a roll here today. But for example, if you look at terrorist attacks from two thousand and two to two thousand and fourteen, every year you were far more likely to die from a lightning strike. Or a bee sting. Not the bees! The bees, they're coming for you. No. I actually didn't
1: get that reference. Is this some movie? It's it's a Nicolas Cage movie. I forget the name, but basically, he gets in trouble with like a local. Uh, God, it's been here since I've seen it. Some local like tribal group. Very. Yeah. Very, well, kind of like. Uh, what's the word? Like Northeast witch hunting kind of tribal there's witch hunts going on anyway he breaks one of the rules and what they do is they put a helmet full of bees on his face and he goes not the bees and then they sting him a bunch
0: so you're you're more likely to die from bees than terrorism and that's obviously not even the really dangerous risks that you face right so include 2001 for example over 3000 people got killed in the 9/11 attacks and it was a really serious event and it has altered the way that america thinks about its role in the world at the same time there's about 130,000 deaths every year in america from just accidental injuries like falling down the stairs or you know accidentally shocking yourself
1: your toaster falls into the bathtub so, well, and I, like fifty thousand from accidental poisoning, which like you got to think about. It. It's not just falling down the stairs. It's like, oh, look at this like nice chemical. I'm just gonna, you know, and just fall over and die. Now, some of this is ODs, and they're quite terrible. But like accidental poisoning is just like far more likely to kill you than terrorism. Far more likely, and
0: you're, we're not changing our policies to bend over backwards to prevent accidental poisonings because that's silly, right? But even within the highest category of risk is heart disease and cancer and something like 600,000 and 500,000 people in the US every year die from heart disease and cancer. But are we spending tons big. to aren't we spending tons to get rid of that? We're spending like no money on this. What? You put together a great chart I did. a while it's ago. I am just pretending to not know. Exactly. Showing uh, dollars spent per death type, and it's several hundred millions of dollars for terrorism. But if you look at heart disease and cancer and strokes, and there's another top five category, It's you can't even see the, the bar on the chart because it's so low. And it, it's just an interesting chart because it very, it, it powerfully shows where our priorities lie. But, man, you combine heart disease and cancer, it's a million people a year that's actually a big number. That's a third of a percent every year. Like I thought about that this morning and I'm like, oh man, like, whoa, I really, uh, I need to start running more, but you know, you don't hear about that on the news because terrorism is novel and unusual. And as it says in the name, terrifying. So it's important to keep these events that we as a society have a tendency to focus on in context of, of other risks that you may not be hearing about.
1: Yeah. And I think, there's I you know it's just I'm so unpopular whenever I say this but I say hey there's some good news too and if we think about these events specifically like the reason we care about them is because they impact our lives right and there's kind of like two things we care about in our lives from the perspective of public policy one of them is how long we live and the other one is the quality of our life right we want people to live longer. We want them to have higher quality of life. And the latter is like pretty complex. You can't really measure it, but, you know, but it's stuff like economic well being and health and happiness uh, and all that other stuff that, you know, you can kind of measure. It's like the weather, right? You can measure the wind speed. You can't measure, you know, you can measure precipitation and all these things combined to be the weather. So we want higher quality of life. And what does quality of life mean? look like in the long-term trends right now for the United States and for the world. Well, there's a couple of different metrics you can look at. For example, life expectancy
0: is way up compared to 100 years ago. It's it's nearly 80 years of age today compared to 50. And obviously a lot of that average figure has to do with infant mortality, but nonetheless that means that we've done pretty good at reducing infant mortality. But quality of life is also going up. The UN has this Human Development Index, which attempts to measure quality of life through a bunch of different submetrics and all that. But it's been going up for decades. And the percent of people living in absolute poverty, this figure astounds me, has declined so much in the last 30 years. It's It's gone from 37% of the global population. And when I say absolute poverty, I don't mean like missing a meal or two or not being able to, you know, go out for that extra event. I mean, just barely being able to get access to the basic level of sustenance and able to, in order
1: to get by. 37% of the world in 1990. Yeah, and the UN defines that as a ninety a day, which in the United States seems unimaginable, uh, but it's, it's how, like, most of the world lived. On, like, the vast majority of the world lived until late in the 20th century. Like, when we talk about poverty in the United States, we're talking about a very, very different thing Thousands or a thousand times – well, more than – yeah, thousands of times different than what we're talking about in other parts of the world.
0: Yeah, the average American right now and frankly the average Westerner enjoys a standard of living that was almost not even really available to some of the richest nobility throughout all of history. Mm -hmm. Uh, But just focusing on this poverty statistic, right, 37 percent of the global population in 1990 – less than 10%. It's 9% today. And that's only 25 years. We've made huge progress. And in huge terms of numbers, while a, huge, the global population has gone up obviously in the last 30 years, we've brought a billion people with a B out of poverty while the population is still going up. Not the bees. The bees. Be a billion. <laughs> So what, 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 have, what has humankind accomplished that has led to some of these improvements? Well, a lot of these are due to medical advancements. Uh, AIDS used to be a life sentence not long ago in the 80s. Someone diagnosed with AIDS. It was just a matter of time. But it's now a largely treatable and preventable disease.
1: Yeah, and so not dying randomly due to random stuff like AIDS is actually a big part of the poverty problem because you, like, you know, invest in raising all these kids and they die. And that just doesn't get the job done. Um, You know, it doesn't allow you to build a stable economy. And a lot of the other stuff that's happened is sort of natural economic advances. So what happens is as countries are welcomed into the global economy, what happens is that trade allows them to start exporting goods that are valuable and start making income. And so what happens is like through some of the natural processes of the global economy like east asia has largely been brought out of poverty whereas like if you ask your grandparents you know they'll say like ah, oh, yeah japanese and korean and you know vietnamese and filipino and chinese people like they were all dirt poor i mean we they thought of east asia the way that we think of sub-saharan africa today but that region has largely been brought out of poverty and into the modern world's economy um, and it's just, you know, that's been like largely, that's been a large driver of the billion people that have come out of poverty, but it hasn't been through aid programs, it hasn't been through stuff that depends on policy, it's something that happens on its own, which is really cool. Yeah, China, Southeast Asian, also India. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, India is not as far as East Asia, obviously, but it's making huge progress.
0: So we're seeing economic development take off, bringing people out of poverty. We're seeing medical advancements. We're seeing both in terms of improvements in medicine, but also in treatment methods, the decline of deaths that have just been, or diseases that have been scourges on humanity for all of its existence. Like malaria deaths, for example, they still afflict tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people, but they're at an all-time low right now. Yeah, And there exists... Extraordinarily effective nonprofits that are acting to bring down specifically malaria deaths even more in very cost effective ways. And I just really relish the opportunity to bring up this one particular organization whenever I get the chance to, and it's called Anti Malaria Foundation. And if you've ever heard of Give Well, they basically do a bunch of research and rate how effective other types of charities are, Anti-Malaria Foundation almost always ranks as number one or number two. And that's not just because they're extraordinarily effective, but because they do it on average for a very few dollars. So all of these statistics are available online, but Anti-Malaria Foundation and GiveWell estimate that they can save a life with their intervention on average for $3,000. And a lot of it is just distributing uh, anti uh, mosquito nets visit givewell.org if you're interested in more but we're doing a very good job with diseases and th- these are things that remember like for most of our our existence people just said oh well who knows it's the
1: gods yeah i mean and sort of there was there was a long period of time where like nobody was fully immune right because like wealth didn't make a difference except for your capacity to leave and if you know, and that was still a dice roll, so like you'd reduce the chances of getting the plague or whatever, but I mean, if you look at Athens, if you look at Europe during the black plague um if you look at measles, stuff like that, I mean everybody spanish got it spanish flu Spanish flu yeah killed killed more people than battle deaths in World War one, and if you imagine World War One and the muck and the You know, people getting gangrene and people getting shot up and blown up by shelling. I mean, Spanish flu was bigger than that, and it hit everyone in the Western world. And that's almost unthinkable right now because of the advancements we've made. In addition to all that, we've eradicated diseases
0: that have just always been there in history, like smallpox. You mentioned the Black Plague, polio. I mean, we've... If we haven't completely eradicated them, we've come very close. We have
1: come very close.
0: So you mentioned a moment ago economic development, and an interesting statistic that I read in a foreign affairs article re- fairly recently uh, it was talking about global income inequality, right? Because income inequality has become this big issue, especially in America, but also the West generally. Understandably so. Income inequality within the U.S., within developed Western countries has been increasing, but income inequality between countries on a global level, it's decreasing. So, I mean, there's nuances there, obviously, but that's an indication that there is a tide rising people up from what was previously just a a very difficult form of existence.
1: Yeah. And the way you can, you know, might be going like, oh, what about the top 1%? But if you look at the GDP growth by country, you see that the lowest-income countries are growing very quickly. I mean, they're growing at 6%, 8%, 10%, 15% per year. You know, and the developed world, is growing at 25 or something. And it's not surprising, right? Like, playing catch-up is easier than trying to innovate your way into a more efficient and productive economy, um, in particular in global trade, right? Because global trade allows countries with lower tech levels and lower income levels to to be able to take over some of the lower value production from other countries. Um, So it allows them to grow very quickly without shrinking the economy of the developed nation. One of the benefits for the developed world of moving this lower value production overseas is that work hours are decreasing, right? So even in the United States, people are working on average 20 hours less per week than they did in 1900. And the average work week has actually been declining in the past 20 years. Uh, And this is due in part to increased efficiency per hour of production. So it allows people to, even if they're just maintaining their income, work less to do it, which is really powerful and really important while also giving these, Developing economies an opportunity to participate in the global economy and start to end poverty. And this has given us a lot of time to do other stuff. Both the money and the extra time uh, for the developed economy in the West has allowed us to increase the amount of time we spend on education. When people talk about stuff like child labor, what happens is they point to. Developing economies, and they say, "Oh, look at this evil child labor almost as if like the government or corporations like running around and scooping up children in order to like force them to work in coal mines or something where their parents are like, No, no, like I want to send my child to school, but like the reason that you know that doesn't happen. The reason that parents would send their children to work is because they like literally can't live otherwise, right, because like the parents don't make enough money with their labor because it's not productive enough and not valuable enough to be able to support children going through school. But what happens is as uh, work productivity goes up and the value of work goes up, it allows us to leave children and young adults in school for longer, right? It allows parents to say, oh, I can support my 2 to 12 children, however many it is, uh, with food and shelter and clothing while they go to school. And so the proportion of the global population that's attended formal education has increased from 1990, sorry, from 1900, from 33% to well over 80% in 2010. It also, even in the developed world, allows more people to at least spend time in college without having to then enter the workforce because that parental support is still there.
0: Totally. And- Probably in part as a result of some of these trends, child mortality is way down. There's a really great publication called Future Crunch on Medium, if you're a blog reader. And all they do is talk about positive news. And I'm just going to read a a quick quote about the trends in child mortality that they posted in a recent post. About 19,000 fewer children died per day in 2015 than 1990. In 1990, the baseline year for measuring progress. Since 2000 alone, we've saved the lives of 48 million children. Now think about that for a second. That's higher than the combined total from all deaths from war and violence around the world during that same exact period. By a it means, lot. By a lot. It means that fewer parents, as a proportion of the world's population, had to bury their children this year than at any other time in human history it's one of the most astonishing news stories of our time and yet it was outnumbered 100 to 1 by stories on terrorism
1: and this is this is a bigger point i want to bring up this is something that's very natural to humans but it biases us people get used to a bad thing that's constant right so when they're when like you know you live in the united states or the west and you're, you're just used to the idea that outside of the United States or in some of the you know more poorer parts of either the United States or Europe or something, but in particular outside of the country, you're just used to, okay, child mortality is very high, child education is very low, people are poor, they starve. It's just a norm in your life. You don't wake up in the morning and go, oh, oh I'm so mad about all these people dying. But if there was a terror attack yesterday, you're really upset, you're really emotional about it, even though if you're in the West, at max, 3,000 people have died, whereas tens of thousands of children die every day. And this is called the benchmarking problem, right? So you get used to this benchmark of, okay, yesterday, child mortality rate, poverty, starvation, death by malaria, whatever, they were X, and... Tomorrow they're X, and you get used to it, you're not upset by it. But something very, very small and flashy happens, and people freak the fuck out. But it's tiny. It's comparatively tiny. And when we set some benchmark for normalcy in our own minds and only compare to, de- to deviations from that, we get weirdly complacent about these things that are really huge in, compared to this, in comparison to the stuff that we really care about. Rather than looking at things from a zero standard where we say, hey, what's the trend look like versus a standard where like zero people are dying as children, zero people are living in poverty, zero people go hungry because we're so used to it. So the flashy thing that upsets you, it could happen that it's responsible for like 0.01% of the really terrible things for the year. But that's all anyone cares about because it's flashy, because they've got so used to the rest, right? And so that's one of the things about what's going on this year is that there are these, like, flashy, scary things, and some of which are ongoing challenges. But to a large extent, we've totally missed the massive changes that have happened even over the past few years to some of the stuff that's, like, really important and really big if what we care about is – global life expectancy and global quality of life we miss it it's important that we don't miss it and in particular we have bad prioritization right because we're prioritizing stuff like terrorism that kills a fairly small amount of people per year when we're largely ignoring the stuff that kills tens of millions of people per year or leaves them in poverty or keeps them from being educated and we're dividing diverting our resources poorly and that's the point of focusing on risks in the context
0: of frequency, because at the end of the day, if you're talking about policy, which we have a tendency to do on this show, yeah, a little bit, you need to know how to divert or direct resources. I mean, just just look at some of the trends in, say, warfare and violent death, for example. And Stephen Pinker, I know you've read this book, Eric, but Better Angels of Our Nature, great mm, book. What a wonderful book. It's basically a study on the history of violence and collects a, t- a ton of data and just walks you through it in a very easy-to-digest way. But looking at the Middle Ages through today, I mean, the rate of death from from violence has decreased exponentially, as has that from war. If you look at today versus early societies, like pre Leviathan, pre-centralized governance, it's way down, orders of magnitudes lower. We're doing much better now, the way that we structure societies in preventing and managing violent deaths than we used to. And while new wars have broken out, you can look at Syria, and that's a really serious problem that can spread places. There are other wars that had seemed intractable, and uh, like they would never end, and they are coming to an end. Look at the FARC, the rebel guerrilla movement in Colombia that has essentially been waging a war against the government since the early 1960s. There are fewer international wars now than at pretty much any other time in history. Uh, granted, there are non-state actors that are causing major conflict, but they don't have the ability to corral resources the same way that nation-states do and direct those towards an aggressive attack generating a conflict with another country
1: yeah or generating that level of casualties i mean and the the reason we're talking to you about this is that you know you may think that and and this is kind of gets back to our bigger point as like why do we bother doing this like why do we have this podcast and some of it's that we like people listening to our voice and telling us how great we are right that's fun but the the mission behind it, the thing that like gets us to bother doing this instead of I don't know like playing video games or doing work, which I have to do as soon as this podcast is over. Womp womp. Yeah, it's fine. I mean, I like it. Um, I love my work. But like, why why do we take the break to do this? We don't get paid. You know, all this stuff. The point is that like people think that their opinion doesn't matter. People think that how they feel about something doesn't matter, and they're like oh there's just this kind of like cold system that you know that just does whatever it wants and i'm you know it's like fine for me to think whatever i want and like i don't really have this responsibility to be educated and like i don't have this responsibility to think hard about the stuff i believe but it is the case that the people you elect or the people that you didn't elect cuz a majority of other people elected them they do care about what their constituents happen to believe because that's what gets them reelected. And when you're like able to be manipulated by news media or other external influences in a thing you're like, "Oh, terrorism's really scary." And when you give into that, what happens is the government responds because the people that you elected are responding to that because they need to win votes. That's their currency. Their currency is your vote. And they poll people all the time and they care and You know, Newt Gingrich actually recently had an interview where he kind of got lambasted. But one of the things that he had said in the interview was, you know, Americans feel less safe than they ever have. And the interviewer said, yeah, but statistically Americans are more safe. And Newt Gingrich said, that doesn't matter. What matters is that Americans feel less safe. And you can cite your statisticians all you want, but Americans feel less safe. And it was probably not the most eloquent moment of his life, but what he's really saying is that, hey, look, these are incentives. And to some extent, it doesn't matter what reality is per se. As long as Americans feel unsafe, that's the thing they're going to want us to do is focus on their safety because we are a democracy. And as much as we, like, love to have pretensions that everything's rigged and all this stuff and people don't listen to the American's voice, that's what happens at the end of the day. Like, the polls do matter. And how people feel matters. And so how you feel matters and how you talk to people matters and what you tell people matters, right? When you're able to say, like, hey, maybe you shouldn't worry about terrorism so much because you're, like, way more likely to die by a bee sting or something like that. That does matter. And it matters in aggregate. And so I want us to think about, like, the reason we're telling you all this isn't so you can walk away and say, like, oh, well, that's interesting. The reason we're telling you all this is so that you can change things because I think you can. I think one of the best comparisons for me is, think about, you
0: run out of milk. You need to go down to the grocery store. You need to buy some milk. that happens. Right? Like many Americans, you will drive down to the grocery store and you will buy your milk. Now, does that seem out of place or scary or dangerous to you? 40,000 people die every year in automobile accidents. And that's, on average, over the last 13 years in the U.S., 14 years— you're 2000 times more likely to die going picking up your milk than you are from a terrorist attack. And you're so over say, four
1: times as sorry, over 3 times as likely to die from driving on the road picking up your milk than you are even from domestic violence like gun shootings. Right. Yeah,
0: you're far more likely to get killed in a well, I don't want to say a normal homicide, but a non-terrorist act of violence than a terrorist one. So if you think about how afraid you are to go about your daily life and incur the risks that you incur that are far greater than the risk from terrorism in particular, why then are we so concerned about terrorism? And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be concerned because there are aspects to the ideology that underpins terrorism that can have far-reaching consequences, perhaps beyond the risk of 20 deaths in America per year. But... Does that mean that we should be as afraid as we are? Should we be as
1: terrified as those committing the acts want us to be? And should we be investing the resources in preventing it that we're investing? I want to leave us off this rant of good news with a a brief touch on good news on the environment. Uh, Global warming is something that a lot of people are concerned about. Obviously... As far as we're measuring it, this is the hottest year on record, and we've sort of had each month being the hottest year on record. So something people are, are very worried about. And it's, a, it's an ongoing challenge to figure out how to deal with carbon emissions. But there is even a glimmer of hope here. In 2015, and we don't have the data for 2016 yet, carbon emissions dropped for the first time, excepting recessions for a very, very long time. Um, Now, they went down 0.3%, but they went down uh, after a lot of growth going on. The United States and the EU are leading the way, and you probably haven't heard that the United States has been reducing its carbon emissions for some years, but it has. Uh, And that means that the carbon emissions per capita in these industrialized nations has been going down a lot because their population has been growing somewhat. Now, the EU has been reducing its carbon emissions for longer than the United States. Uh, But the United States is sort of catching up and declining faster than anyone else. Even China's carbon dioxide output is expected to decline a little bit in 2016, which, by the way, is like total crazy town, right? Because they've been growing at an astronomical rate. Um, But we're learning as a society to start to become more efficient about how we use carbon. And if we look beyond just global warming... Mineral metal use has been declining in industrial nations for a long time. And the reason is not that we've reduced production, not that we've contracted our economy towards this kind of Stone Age thing to say, oh, we just can't do it. It's because we've grown more efficient about how we use those natural resources that we have. We have passed peak copper, peak zinc, peak iron. We've passed all these things and we're just using less of it. Um, and by peak, I mean peak in the demand as opposed to peak in the supply. Um, and even it's even the case that the world's forests are rebounding. Forestation is growing rather than declining. And you hear all the time about deforestation. What happens is someone focuses in on a local area and says, hey, in this local area, forests are declining. But forests have actually been growing globally, particularly, again, in industrialized nations. Uh, because for station for wood and for paper has largely converted to farms. Um, and in particular, uh, urbanization has allowed areas that were being developed earlier to start to reforest. Um, so there's even some good news on the environment front. There's this glimmer of hope that we're figuring out what we need to do in order to have a planet that supports the population that we're going to have.
0: Yeah, I don't think that means we get complacent, right? Because even no, at current right. levels, especially on climate change, and I'm, I'm particular on this issue because I spent you know several years of my life managing an energy efficiency company. But at current levels, if there is no increase, we still face some catastrophic consequences. So totally. just because trends are going in the right way does not mean that we can just throw our hands up and feel comfortable with it all. Additionally, just because trends are positive does not mean that serious challenges don't continue to confront us. For example, just because violence uh, or death from violence and war has been declining does not necessarily mean that the risk of a nuclear confrontation is going down. And you you only need one outlier in the realm of nuclear conflict to wreck just complete and utter chaos everywhere in the world. That's, that's one example, right? Antibiotic resistant bacteria is another. I mean, if we've made all these advances in medicine that we've talked about on this episode over the last hundred, 120 years, that can be like stepping back into the early 20th century. Is not something that we want. So the, the, the reason we bring up the positive stories on this episode is to bring everything in context, as we like to do, and say that, yes, there are some serious problems that we face that we continue to need creative solutions in order to solve. But that doesn't mean that the world is falling apart. It doesn't mean that we should divert resources in a way that is not necessarily justifiable based on relative risk. But it does mean that we're making progress, and progress is good, and we shouldn't ignore that just because the inherent tendency of news outlets is to focus on negative, anomalous, unusual events.
1: Yeah, and in particular, it means we need to prioritize appropriately, right? We do have a limited supply of resources at any given moment to be able to deploy to solving the hardest problems that face the world at any given time. And when we're deploying them to problems, and and these aren't just monetary resources, it's not just labor and materials, but it's also like political energy, right? When we're running around arguing about terrorism or gun violence or something like that, in the wake of these huge things that kill lots of people, including in the United States and including in the Western world, what we're doing is diverting this energy and capacity to drive change through governmental and non-governmental avenues away from stuff that's really going to move the needle in a major way. Um, And I'm a a big data guy. I don't know if there's any way of justifying not being a big data guy. But I think that being able to, as citizens, again, because we live in a democracy, as citizens, make fact-based decisions. To be able to say, hey, look, here's the data, here's the big stuff, here's what we need to work on, and here's where we need to develop our resources, is critical for the country being able to move forward. And I think each of us, all of us, needs to take responsibility as an individual to committing ourselves to resisting the emotionally scary stuff, the flashy stuff, the stuff that really gets our blood hot. And being able to say, you know what, the stuff that I care about is the big picture stuff, the stuff that has the numbers associated with it, and I'm going to talk about – think that, talk about that. If I get polled, discuss that. And you know, if you're feeling like you actually want to make real change in the world, not only proselytizing it but also talking to your congressperson or your representative about, hey, I think this should be the thing that's the priority. Because if you don't, it's not going to happen because the people that just happen to get emotional about something are the ones that are going to win the day. Um, And as we found in this podcast, the stuff that people get most emotional about isn't the stuff that's going to move the needle in a big way. It's not the stuff that's going to really drive the change and solve the hard problems in the world that we want to solve. So I think with that,
0: faithful listeners, we will call it a show and say, remember, as always – don't let the pundits do the thinking for you. Pause and reconsider. This is Xander signing off.
1: This is Eric signing off. Good night, everyone. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend.